Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Racing News 365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as usual by Dieter Renkin, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. Dieter, welcome to the show. Uh, it's been uh, the first podcast that we've had since uh, three weeks ago because we didn't have the Russian Grand Prix, of course. Uh, we're talking on the Monday morning after the Singapore Grand Prix, the first race in Singapore since 2019, and a pretty eventful race it was. We uh, had a delay by an hour after a downpour of pretty biblical proportions. We had two separate safety car and virtual safety car periods as the drivers struggled with the slippery track and the, the tight confines and the unforgiving walls at Marina Bay. We had Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton both finishing down the order after making mistakes. And we had Sergio Perez winning the race, winning his second race of the year and the fourth race of his career after taking the lead at Turn 1. How did you enjoy the event? Uh, well, first of all, good morning, Michael. Um, again, as you say, from Singapore, um, you talk about biblical da- downpours. Well, we had another one this morning at about five, six o'clock, and I woke up and um, it was streaming wet outside. Uh, you know, again, biblical proportions. I wouldn't like to to argue whether yesterday was was Old Testament and this morning was New Testament or whatever. But believe me, both of them were biblical proportions, and I think that's indicative of the sort of weather one can have in Singapore. And amazingly enough, this was actually the first uh, race where we'd actually had a real downpours. In the past, we've had a downpours afterwards, sometimes a bit during. But in real terms, this is the first time that, that rain has disrupted play since we first came here back in 2008. Now, um, as far as I, I was concerned, the delayed start, I think, had some merit, but not for as long as it was delayed. We had a similar situation in Monaco this year, and I I keep getting the feeling that race directors are erring on the side of caution, and I use the word err um, in a bit of a loose sense. In other words, I'm not making that, I'm not stating that outright errors. However, there seems to be a bit of nervousness, and therefore, let's rather be a bit cautious. In the process, I believe that they're not fully au fait, fully aware of what these drivers can do. Let's not forget that that Charlie Whiting had worked with Formula One drivers for 30, 40 odd years. He was aware of their skills, their abilities and whatever. We then had the Michael Massey era. Michael came from supercars and rally and whatever. And uh, regardless of what one thinks of his administration, he still didn't have that real feel for what a Formula One driver and a Formula One car on wet tires can do. And ditto with the, the current crop, um, Eduardo Freitas and um, Niels Wittig. One came from DTM, the other one from WEC. One of the issues with WEC, of course, is that you have a massive, massive um, spectrum of drivers. On the one side, you've got the real professionals. I mean, we've had uh, Fernando Alonso racing there, etc. And then on the other end, at the other extreme, you have gentleman drivers and Ferrari 360s or whatever. And uh, so, you know, you're sort of saying maybe they don't fully understand. And because they don't, they then turn around and say, well, let's delay it. It's a safer option. But ultimately, in the process, they are effectively impacting on the essence of Formula One, which is to see the best drivers in the world and the best cars in the world taking each other on under whatever conditions. Yeah, I mean, we had the delay for about one hour because it was simply too wet to start at the allotted time. And then one hour later, when we did finally get underway, 
all of the drivers were on intermediate tyres. There was nobody going on full wets, which suggested that it had dried a lot. I mean, looking at it on TV, the, 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 the start-finish straight looked almost bone dry, but obviously there were, uh, there were rivers of water elsewhere on the track. But, uh, yeah, it did feel like it, it was over-cautious to wait for that long when none of the drivers needed the extreme wets. I, I don't think any of the drivers actually took on extreme wets for the duration of the race. Absolutely. And I think that the point here is, Michael, a, a point very well made, is that in Singapore, you know, you do have fantastic drainage because they have these constant deluges. So they have to ensure that the water runs away as quickly as possible. And again, I think this is a matter of experience on the part of the race directors who fundamentally need to be aware of how quickly water can drain away. Yes, we had the main straight, which was fundamentally dry. Believe me, though, it was very, very, very slippery. I was surprised we didn't have an incident during the start. I mean, um, I was talking to Mario Isola, and um, he sort of rubbed his feet on the, on the uh, surface and he said, feel that. And I then did the same. And the soles of my shoes were sort of um, <laughs> uh, gliding across the surface. And um, I, I'm wondering whether, again, there wasn't a bit of caution on the part of drivers who didn't want to just bog down with a spin. And therefore, we had this reshuffle at the start. In terms of the... Um, in terms of the the overall race, I mean, we do know that we had the virtual safety cars. We do know that we had the safety cars. We do know that Checo Perez twice got a penalty, so one, one for each safety car period for not maintaining the 10-gap uh, distance. Um, Christian Horner argued last night that it was very difficult under the circumstances, uh, that, you know, that there were constantly variable conditions. And you do have this in Singapore because, you know, unlike other circuits which are baked in sunlight, so when it stops raining, the sun comes out, then, of course, it dries out pretty quickly. Um, what you have here is a lot of wet patches because we're talking streets, so you're talking uneven surfaces. You're also talking areas where the water doesn't drain away because it's lined with, um, with barriers or uh, buildings and whatever. So, and uh, there are bridges, uh, there's a flyover. So, you know, the, the area below that isn't wet, but immediately on either side it is. A lot of variable changes. Uh, and um, I think that Checker had a point when he said it was very, very difficult to maintain that. My feeling is that if he's going to err on the side of caution, and the race directors do, if you're going to cut the race directors slack, then they should cut the driver's slack. Well, let's talk about Perez now. Uh, he took that win, his second of the season, his fourth of his career. But there was a bit of an asterisk next to his name for a couple of hours because he was given a five-second penalty uh, after the race for a safety car infringement. Ultimately, it didn't have any bearing on the race result because he crossed the line seven and a half seconds ahead of Charles Leclerc. But could this not have been decided during the race? I understand that maybe the stewards wanted to hear Perez's side of the story before meeting out any punishment, but it's very unsatisfactory for, for all the viewers, for all of us who want to see motor racing, when you have somebody crossing the line and you don't know until after the race whether that result's going to stand. Um, you, you're absolutely correct. It is very frustrating. Um, the only other option, frankly, is for them to red flag a race, investigate, and then restart it, as one does effectively in ball sports, for example, where the referee stops it, blows his whistle, stops the match, it goes and hears both sides, takes a decision, and then the whistle goes again and they carry on playing. This is one of the peculiarities of Formula One. If the FIA doesn't give the driver the opportunity of, of, of reply, 
um, an explanation. They're going to get criticised for that, and the wrong driver could actually win the race, the championship, the whatever. If they do, the fans are up in arms. Um, I think that fundamentally um, we, we have to accept the fact that there is a process. They, to, to investigate it during the race uh, would mean calling the sporting director up. Um, and let's not forget, we're talking here about an incident, but we're trying to apply a general rule to all incidents. Now, you know, if we're going to turn around and say, well, they could have decided this one during the race, but the other one they should have listened to afterwards, where do we draw the line? Then again, their accusation of inconsistency. I think that, that fundamentally what we have to accept is that motor racing doesn't have a whistle stop the way you do in other sports. There will always be offences that need to be investigated after the event, particularly because, again, unlike, say, football, where you have two sides and one ball, here you actually have 20 balls running around a circuit. Not all areas are visible to the, the stewards, the race directors, whatever. And... Um, in order to take a proper decision, they need to consider all the factors. Plus, whilst they're considering all these factors, there could be other incidents that are happening out there that they are now not looking at because they're concentrating on this one. So I do believe, although it's not ideal, it is certainly the best potential solution. Well, turning to off-track matters now, in the days leading up to the Singapore Grand Prix, the, the news was dominated by rumours of Red Bull and indeed also of Aston Martin having breached the, the budget cap in 2021. Uh, and then we had, uh, we had Toto Wolff and Lauren Meckes both calling for you know, significant punishment for the book to be thrown at Red Bull if indeed they are found to have, have breached the budget cap. Christian Horner was very, very angry about this in the, the press conference on Saturday, uh, demanding that, the, that Mercedes and Ferrari retract their accusations, and even at one point uh, questioning the integrity of one of the journalists actually at the press conference. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's begin at the beginning. How has this situation come about? Well, first of all, we, we have the budget cap in place, which was introduced at the beginning of last year. Um, during the course of a year, a team may spend only so much money on the racing operations. There are a number of exclusions, etc., etc. Um, this meant that some of the bigger teams would need to downsize. However, they had, over a period of many years, uh, built up a team of very qualified, uh, very experienced people. They didn't want to lose these skills. They went outside, found other projects, uh, Red Bull, as we know, doing the RB17 hypercar, Mercedes got themselves involved in yachting, uh, Ferrari uh, took on some of the Haas work by establishing a satellite office in Maranello, which does only work for Haas. Uh, and they did this to try and maintain A, these people on the, on the payroll, because, you know, when you, you've got to lay off 100 odd, odd people, as happened in some instances, it's pretty traumatic. And it would have been more than 100 people had they not been able to take on these, these sort of side activities. Um, point one. Point two, every single team on the grid has got a completely different business model. Um, you know, Red Bull works through Red Bull Technology, which supplies it with parts, but also supplies Alpha Tauri with parts. Um, Mercedes have their own operation with an engine operation, which is about 50 kilometers away. Ferrari have their own operation, everything in-house. Then at the other extreme, you have Haas, who don't even have a factory. They have an assembly area and buy everything in. Now, this budget cap had to be um, uh, tailored to fit all the teams. 
they have a reporting period. That reporting period stopped on the 31st of March. And the FIA was supposed to then, within the next three months, go and audit all the teams, have a look at their returns, take them up on them, go and question them, go and check them, etc. Obviously, they don't have to check all 10 teams that diligently because some of the teams are way under and there are no doubts they're way under, so they sort of accept it. Um, in the case of others, um, you know, Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, McLaren, um, who were very close to the cap uh, and in fact operate above the cap level because of all the exclusions, um, in those cases they had to go and, and audit these teams. And of course that takes time. Now, every single regulation depends on interpretation. And this applies to the laws as well. If you read a traffic law, it says you can do this or that or the other, and you interpret it one way, and the policeman interprets it the other way, and a judge decides who's right and who's wrong. The same applies here. So there are certain definitions, um, certain clauses, certain articles, and the teams look at them and they say, ah, so clause A says we can do this, right? Well, let's do it this way. And the FIA looks at it and says, ah, but this means do that and do it that way. And that's where you come down to this. I don't believe that any team goes out there to willfully go and cheat, either on financial, on technical or sporting regulations. What they all do, and this is their job, is they look for an angle. They look for an advantage. And let's not forget that these regulations are brand new. It was the first year. The technical regulations have been in place for 70 years, and so they've evolved over the years. And certain clarifications are handed down almost on a monthly basis. I'm not surprised that there is um, this, this argument about who fundamentally has stuck to the cost cap and who hasn't within very strict parameters. In fact, I'm surprised that we've only highlighted two teams um, and one of them is one of the majors and the other one is one of the minors or semi-minors. And this is going to be very, very interesting to see how it unfolds. But I think to pass any judgment is premature. The rhetoric from Ferrari, Mercedes, frankly, didn't worry me. We hear this all the time. If Red Bull are found with a, a, a floor one millimeter too wide or too high or whatever, yeah, oh, I exclude them from the championship, throw them out of Formula One. This is Formula One, man. <laughs> this is the sort of politics that we, we have on a regular basis. So forget the rhetoric. I think let's focus on the facts. The FIA is investigating. Red Bull and, and Aston Martin or whoever the teams are will have the right of reply and explanation. A decision will be taken, hopefully by Wednesday. And thereafter, if teams are found to be in breach, penalties will apply and they can go and appeal. Well, talking about those penalties, do we know what they are? Because as I understand it, the FIA hasn't yet released a specific list of punishments for any offending team. So are we looking at fines? Are we looking at points deductions? Are we even potentially looking at the re-awarding of last year's titles? Anything is possible. And let me just go back to your comment that they haven't released a list of penalties. No, they haven't for two reasons. A, there are no precedents. A list of penalties is normally decided on the basis of precedent. So if you cross the, um, uh, the track limits by five centimeters, you get five seconds or whatever the case is. And, and this is precedent and that's sort of maintained throughout for, for, for consistency's sake. In this particular case, there aren't any precedents. So it's really a matter of making it up as they go along, of sucking and seeing, of trying to apply reasonable penalties that fit the so-called crime. Now, um, I think there's logic in this, and that is that if you knew that 
all that would happen if you went over by seven and a half million is that you got a thousand buck fine guess what you'd go seven and a half million because that's going to buy you probably a second a lap <laughs> and so that second a lap in real terms is going to cost you a thousand bucks any team worth its salt will do that therefore they've purposely left it vague so that they can ultimately turn around and say well we don't know what we're going to get for this you know we could get excluded let's not take a chance where i have a problem is that a we have this five percent margin uh, during which you can be found to be in minor breach and i'm saying hey rules are rules 145 is 145 it's not 145 plus five percent and if you're in that five percent you get a slap on the wrist so i think that there's an element of vagueness here that needs to be tightened and clarified and equally um, they need to see exactly why these teams are potentially in breach and whether it's explainable i'm hearing in one case it's to do with a fairly hefty salary which has been apportioned and the team believes they've apportioned it correctly this way and the authorities are saying no 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 it should have been apportioned that way and this i believe makes up a substantial part of the of the difference um, as far as red bull are concerned christian horner has protested the team's compliance all the way through in fact he said to me that he believed very firmly strongly that in fact he was adamant that when they submitted their returns back in march that they were under the cost cap in the case of aston martin it appears to be more procedural breach than an actual spend breach and again we need to wait for wednesday but let's not forget back in march uh williams were had for for a procedural breach and they paid their fine so i think that the the best outcome of this is that both teams will be found at worst of a minor breach or a procedural breach will they be excluded no um certainly not for for these sort of things and not in the first year these an exclusion would be for an absolutely blatant uh almost criminal uh breach of the regulations where somebody goes out and throws 500 million at it and says hi oh, if i catch us if you can that sort of thing and none of the teams on the grid would do that and i suppose the issue is if the faa is going into the teams and auditing them how, how do you gauge exactly how much money is being spent? How do you uh, allocate value to the teams? How do you determine how much a front wing or a rear wing costs, for example? It, it feels like there's no easy way of doing that. There is no easy way, but Formula One's never been easy, Michael. And I think this is the, the big thing about it, that people should realize it is a very complex business as well as being a very complex sport, which plays out on a global stage, which again has its own challenges, etc., and uh, the FIA does have some very good people in place. Uh, they have recruited from the teams, for example, the people running the, um, the audits are, are ex-team people. The teams themselves, forget not, all contributed to the process, to the regulations. Uh, you know, in terms of the governance process, teams are always involved in the approval of the regulations. So um, the teams themselves were involved. When it comes to the adjudication panel, which effectively is the equivalent of the financial regulations, the International Court of Appeal, um, the, uh, the, the members of the adjudication panel were submitted in some instances by the teams. So, you know, for the teams to keep pointing fingers at the FIA nonstop and say, ah, oh, the FIA should have done this, etc. 
I'm sorry, <laughs> they, the, these regulations were drawn up in conjunction with the teams. And in many instances, the teams asked for the regulations in the first place. Well, getting back to uh, some of the driver moves for next year, um, we're expecting some announcements uh, before or during the Japanese Grand Prix. We're expecting to hear that Nick de Vries will be signing for Alpha Tauri and then that Pierre Gasly will be going to Alpine. Uh, our, our sources at Racing News 365 have, uh, have told us that they expect that to happen uh, on or just before the Japanese Grand Prix weekend. Uh, I think de Vries going to Alpha Tauri or de Vries being on the F1 grid next year has probably been one of the worst kept secrets in, in recent weeks after his, uh, his stellar performance standing in for Alex Albon at Monza. And Pierre Gasly to Alpine is uh, also a move that's been mooted for for several weeks. Uh, how, do you get, how do you look at those two uh, prospective moves? Well, as, as you correctly said, we revealed last night that um, Nick de Vries will be moving to Alpha Tauri from Mercedes, where he's currently the reserve stroke third driver, their simulator driver. And of course, is also their currently um, um, reigning, well, I would say currently reigning world champion. He was until Stoffel von, uh, von Duren took the, the crown off him recently, but he's a 2021 Formula E world champion. And thus he is a bit of a catch. I mean, he ultimately allows the two Red Bull teams to say, hey, we've got a world champion each. And for the, the Dutch readers and Dutch listeners, of course, you know, the big thing is that they are both Dutch world champions. So it, it is a bit of a catch for them to, to get um, a De Vries. It's also a left field catch because everybody thought he was a shoo at Williams and then they thought he was a shoo at Alpine. Alpine gave him a test. And, um, you know, behind the scenes, um, Alpha Tauri had been working very hard on the guy. And um, he was eventually spotted in, uh, in Graz, leaving the offices of Helmut Marko. The intriguing thing is, um, it, it came through an associate of ours from Motorsport Magazine, who are based in Graz, and one of the journalists there, who's a sort of uh, a, a fan, not even a super fan, but sort of will switch on the TV on a Sunday if he's um, if if he has nothing better to do, and um, he saw De Vries leaving the offices, called his mate, who's a journalist, and said, "Oh, I've just seen De Vries." And the guy said, "Are you sure?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch Formula One well and often enough." to know the difference. And of course, then it was confirmed that he'd been there, etc. So um, I'm expecting the announcement on Friday, certainly the one of, of Alpine uh, Gasly on Friday. And I think that we'll have a knock-on effect with Nick thereafter. That means there are still two cockpits to be filled, one at Williams, uh, vacated by Nicholas Latifi. And then there's uncertainty about uh, Mick Schumacher. Speaking in the paddock to various people yesterday, my prognosis is that we will probably see um, uh, Nika Holtenberg or Antonio Giovinazzi go into Williams, uh, sorry, into Haas. Uh, Giovinazzi helped by um, Ferrari support. And, um, and Nico, through his very good relationship with Günther Steiner, who of course speaks German, etc. And that in real terms leaves um, Mick Schumacher out in the cold unless he can find a berth at uh, Williams. And there he's up against Logan Sargent, the young American who's performed very, very well in um, Formula 2, does have a super license or does qualify for a super license. And it will now be Williams's call whether or not they decide to stick Logan into a third driver role for next year to develop him, or they're going to take a chance on him very early. 
Well, it, because it's been a bit of a while since we've uh, had a podcast, uh, we haven't had a chance to discuss the 2023 calendar, which was released uh, a couple of weeks or so ago. We're looking at 24 races. We're looking at the supposed return of the Chinese Grand Prix. The FIA has been quite insistent about uh, trying, to po trying to push regional groupings of races so as to make it more sustainable, both from an environmental point of view and from uh, the point of view of avoiding too much travel for everybody involved. How do you look at the 2023 calendar? Well, first of all, let's go back to your, your comment uh, about the FIA has been trying to look at regional groupings. Have they succeeded? Absolutely not. However, let's just consider the complexity of constructing a calendar. An ideal calendar from a purely logistics perspective and a sustainability perspective would effectively have one race going to the next closest to the next closest, etc. Uh, this does not take into account uh, promoter preferences, public holidays, um, cultural issues, weather patterns at any time of year, uh, bank holidays, public holidays, and also contractual obligations. You know, people like Abu Dhabi are paying extra to be the finale. So you can't turn around and say, well, it makes sense to lump them together with Bahrain at the beginning of the year because they've paid to be at the end of the year. So it hasn't worked. There was uh, talk that they were going to lump uh, Miami and Canada together, one being in May and the other in June. And they sort of tried to lump them together. And the Miamis said, uh, sorry, but we can't go any later than early May because otherwise it becomes unbearably hot. And the Canadians said, we can't go earlier than sort of first or second week in June because we still have snow here. <laughs> So these are the sort of um, issues that the uh, that Formula One is up against when it constructs a calendar. And of course, uh, slotting 24 dates in is a lot more complex than 16, as it used to be about 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So there are all these complexities. As for the rest, I'm not surprised. Uh, there is no South Africa on there. I'm not surprised. I believe the situation down there was was mismanaged. Um, and I do believe that Formula One should take a part of that, um, that criticism because uh, they don't appear to have gone out and done the full due diligence that one would have expected. And that's why at the last minute they suddenly realized that the, the cupboard was bare. Um, there have been accusations hurled at Motorsport South Africa, at uh, Kyle Army, etc. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the project was at this point, not even really at that level. It was between the promoter and Formula One. The promoter didn't have the money and therefore the plug was pulled. Uh, yes, negotiations had happened with Kyle Army, but primarily you need to find the hosting fee and that was not in place. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of the story there. I don't believe that there's much hope for a South African Grand Prix going forward for 24 unless somebody really puts together a very, very concerted, well-funded effort, properly managed, and does so very, very soon. Yeah, um, I also have my doubts that we'll be going to China, um, given the current state of the, the zero COVID policy that the, the government is continuing with, and the fact that several sporting events in China have either been cancelled or, or postponed either for another couple of years or, or indefinitely. Looking at the calendar for next year, the Chinese Grand Prix is slated for April the 16th. Now, assuming that that can't go ahead on that date, Either side of that, we've got the Australian Grand Prix on April the 2nd and the Azerbaijan Grand Prix on April the 30th. So we're looking at a, a four-week gap without any racing. Now, we've just spoken about the difficulty of fitting 23, 24 races into a, into a calendar. 
if we've got suddenly an unexpected four-week gap there, what does the FIA do? Are they going to try and find another race to fill that April the 16th slot? Are they going to rejig the calendar uh, so that we don't have such a big gap in, just towards the beginning of the season? Or are they just going to keep it as is and just have a bit of a break? Uh, Michael, let's look at the process of the calendar and how it's constructed and what the formalities are. It's F1 that constructs the calendar. They hold the contract with the promoters. Uh, They then compile a a calendar as best they can. And once they have all the dates slotted in, they then give this to the FIA that has a look at possible conflicts with, for example, uh, Lamar. They've been very, very strong on from now on not having a clash between uh, Formula One and Lamar. Uh, but if it fits all the parameters that have been laid down, then the FIA will ratify the calendar. But fundamentally, the, um, the decision about whether a race continues or not, whether another one goes in, starts with Formula One, who will turn around and say, this promoter can't go ahead. Let's, what do we do next? Do we find a substitute? What do we do? And then, of course, they present their options to the FIA, who again will ratify whatever they see fit. So basically what we have in this situation is that if the, uh, the Chinese Grand Prix does not go ahead, I believe that there'll be a very big slot in the calendar, three weeks. Um, basically, I think it's deserved. Uh, because the teams will have come off testing straight into the Bahrain Grand Prix, then into Saudi Arabia, then into Australia. And um, so I think that after a hectic schedule of four races, they would love a bit of a breather if it were possible. Well, another race that we've got coming back next week is the Japanese Grand Prix. Of course, the first race at Suzuka since 2019. Max Verstappen can win the title if he wins that race and takes fastest lap. There are all sorts of other permutations uh, of how he can win the title, depending on where the likes of Charles Leclerc and Sergio Perez finish. But uh, ultimately, if he wins and takes fastest lap, he can win the championship next week. Uh, Dieter, you looking forward to Japan? Absolutely. I won't be there, Michael, uh, because it was very, very complex in terms of arrangements. We needed to apply for for COVID visas back in June and produce travel arrangements and hotel arrangements, etc. And against the background of doubt where the race may go ahead, you know, with the the COVID situation, etc., um, it was a situation where we decided that it was one that we would give us a skip. But we do have representation there, so our readers will be getting the full service. Um, however, in terms of the, the race, well, yeah, it would be great if, if Honda were to be rewarded with a world championship on home soil, on their home, on their home circuit. They own the Suzuka circuit. Um, there is, of course, a slight twist to it, and that is that this year, because of Honda's official withdrawal from Formula One, the cars are actually entered as Red Bull RVPTs, which stands for Red Bull, Red Bull powertrains because the engines are actually currently officially known as RBPTs. So that's a bit of a, a downer for Honda, because much as they would like to brag about it, they don't actually have the name Honda appearing on the entry list, which is a great pity for them. But again, you know, that's one of the prices that they pay for, for having taken the decision somewhat prematurely, I believe, that they took. As far as the rest is concerned, I think uh, to predict a win and fastest lap for Max is a big ask. Um, Of course, he has a chance. Of course, if we look at his record this year, yes, he could win. Absolutely. Let's not forget Ferrari are leaving no stones unturned. Uh, Mercedes is an unknown quantity because their car's been pretty capricious this year. 
Um, was Lando Norris's performance yesterday, was that indicative of what they might be able to pull out of the bag? Who knows? Looking at the list of race wins this year, all we've actually had is, um, so far, is Red Bull and Ferrari. And I think it's about time somebody else wants something as well. And let's hope that Suzuka is the place and not because I wouldn't like Max to win the championship. But I do believe that we need a bit of variety. Well, Dieter, I'm looking forward to the Japanese Grand Prix just as much as I think you are. Thank you so much for joining me today. And we'll be looking to hear from you again immediately after the race in Suzuka when we may have uh, our new world champion crowned. Absolutely. Let's hope for Max's sake it is so and it is him. And let's hope for Formula One's sake that maybe we have a different winner. So a lot to play for in Japan. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at Racing Lines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 Race Weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back after the Japanese Grand Prix.